Okay, we're in Hebrews chapter 2 tonight. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 through 9. For those of you that are listening right now on the website, I hope the rain shower that is hitting the window behind me is not too loud for you all. Hopefully it's not being recorded. We'll find out in time. And Mr. Chris said he can clean it up, so that'll be good. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 through 9 is the section that we're going to cover for tonight. And I guess it would help if I turned there as well. The Hebrew writer says, It is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come, about which we are speaking, but there is a place where someone has testified, What is man that you're mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. You made him a little lower than the angels, and you crowned him with glory and honor, and put everything under his feet. In putting everything under him, God left nothing that is not subject to him. Yet at present we do not see everything subject to him, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor, because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. That's the section that we're going to be studying tonight in the time that we have. So just for those of you that struggle with addresses of uh, where things are written, check out what the Hebrew writer wrote here uh, in verse 6 when he quotes from the Old Testament. He said, uh, but there's a place where someone has testified. Now, this is one or two options. One is the Hebrew writer right off the top of their tongue or the top of their head couldn't tip their tongue and top of their head couldn't remember where it was. Or this is actually where we're about to go study tonight. Such a very, very familiar passage. The Hebrew writer might just also just said someone has written somewhere and the the readers would have known it very well. It could be either one. But what we're going to do tonight is we're going to go back and take a look at the passage that the Hebrew writer was quoting from. And we're going to look at it in detail because in order for us to really understand what the Hebrew writer is saying in this section, we too need to be very familiar with Psalm chapter 8. So put a bookmark in Hebrews chapter 2 and we will come back to it. Let's go take a look at Psalm chapter 8 verses 1 through 9. Now the Hebrew writer is quoting from verses 4 through 6, but we're going to take a look at the whole psalm tonight and take a look at what God wants us to see from it that will make this passage a little bit more clear. Psalm chapter 8, verses 1 through 9. As you can see, David wrote this psalm. He says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens from the lips of children and infants. You have ordained praise because of your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet. All flocks and herds and the beasts of the field, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea, all that swim in the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. A very, very familiar passage. But I want to ask you a question tonight. Is David the psalmist, when he writes about what is man that you're mindful of him, son of man that you care for him, is he speaking or referring to us as humans? Or is he speaking about Jesus? Those of you who say yes to both, you're correct. That's the right answer. Actually, and we're going to take a look at this, and this will help you understand Hebrews 2. David is writing about mankind. 
but he's also prophesying about Jesus. And I can show you that in just a second. So let's take a look at here. Look again. Look at verses 4 through 6. What is man that you're mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. You made him a little lower than the heavenly beings or the angels and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet. And then he goes on to talk about the flocks and the herds and the beasts of the field, the birds of the air. Well, go with me back to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, look at verses 26 through 28. When God made man in his image, the scripture says that he gave him dominion and authority over his creation, over God's creation there on the earth. In Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28, it said, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Now, real quickly, look closely at how the scripture clearly says that man and woman were made in the image of God. And actually, even though we know the Bible clearly says that God is our Father, at the same time, there are some very interesting passages in the Scripture where Jesus himself stood over Jerusalem and said, If only you would have let me, I would have gathered you as a mother hen gathers her chicks, but you weren't willing. There are places where God says in the prophets, I wished you would come and, I, and, and sit on my lap and I could have nursed you. Folks, I want you to understand, both male and female are made in the image of God. And if you just look at male, you don't get a full picture of who God is. Woman is a big part of who God is as well. God, Please don't hear me say God is female or God's a woman. The Bible is very clear, God is our Father. Yet, we need a full picture of who God is in both the husband and the wife, both man and the woman. Those That gives us a real clear picture of who God is. And we're not doing a study on that tonight, so we're just going to stop that for now. But just please keep that in mind. Male and female were made in His image. And you get the full image of God when you have both. Alright? Now... Man has been given dominion over the things on the earth, but we've had to struggle in this dominion. How come? Because of sin. If you keep reading, go to chapter 3. Look at verses 17 through 19. Just a little picture of it. And after after Adam and Eve sinned to Adam, God said, Because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree which I commanded you not to eat of it, cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Here God says, you still have dominion, but now it's going to be tougher. Now it's going to be tougher. And so, yes, God has put us over the works of his hands. But if we go back to Hebrews chapter 2 you'll see that actually the Hebrew writer is saying that this passage that we just read in Psalm 8 is actually referring to Jesus. Alright? Look at verse 8. Actually, we'll start in verse 7. You made him a little lower than the angels. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 7. You made him a little lower than the angels and you crowned him with glory and honor and put what? 
everything under his feet. Now the Hebrew writer goes on to say, in putting everything under him, God left nothing that is not subject to him. Yet at present, we don't see everything subject to him, but we do see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death. And we're going to talk about that. Here the Hebrew writer says, the fact that the scripture says everything has been put under his feet, that hopefully helps you understand he's not talking about us. We have been given given dominion over the things of the earth, the animals, the plants, the birds, the fish. But is everything under our feet? No, because that would make Jesus under our feet. And so actually, the Hebrew writer is not the first one to quote from Psalm 8 and say it refers to Jesus. Go to 1 Corinthians 15 and you'll see that actually Paul quotes from Psalm chapter 8 and refers it to Jesus as well. Now again... It is true that Psalm 8 is referring to us. It's a wonderful worship place. If you ever want to go and get out in God's creation, look at the stars and look at the creation that he's made and then spend some time in Psalm 8 worshiping him for the fact that we, he would even consider us. What is man that you even care about him? That you, I mean, it's amazing you've even, you made us less than the angels, yet you've given us dominion over this whole planet. And it's an amazing thing. As much as that is referring to us, Paul here even quotes from there, 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 20, and he refers to Jesus. Verse 20 of chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, it says, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own turn, Christ the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God and the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. And then he quotes from Psalm 8. For he has put everything under his feet. Now when it says everything has been put under him, it's clear that he does not include, this does not include God himself who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him so that God may be all in all. Here, the, the, uh, Paul saying that just as in Adam all die, those who are in Christ are all going to be made alive. And as Jesus rose from the dead, so there too, those who are in Christ will also rise from the dead. And then he says he's put everything, last thing to be destroyed is death, and he's put everything under his feet. And he's quoting from Psalm 8. That's the one place in that psalm that helps us understand that not only is it talking about us as humans, it's also a prophecy in there about Jesus himself. We have been given tremendous dominion, folks, and and authority on this earth by God over his creation. But everything's not under our feet. And we're going to get into that in a lot more detail tonight. As we start dealing with, we're going to take a look tonight at, well, how much authority do we have? And what about those who claim the authority of Jesus and all this? We're going to get into all that tonight. Because there's a need for us to really understand the truth of the scripture when it comes to how much authority do we have now that we're in Christ. And now that greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. What kind of power do we have and how do we exercise that authority? We're going to get into that a little bit tonight in some detail. But for right now, what I want you to understand though is in the same way in which we have been given dominion over the earth for a time, the Bible does say that in this world to come, the kingdom to come, that Jesus is going to rule, we're going to reign with him. We're actually going to be co-heirs with Jesus Christ. So go there real quick to Romans chapter 8. We saw already tonight in Genesis that the earth was put under a curse because of man's sin. 
And in Romans chapter 8, we'll start in verse 15. It says, For you didn't receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, or Daddy, Father. The Spirit, big S there, capital S, the Holy Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now if we are children, then we're heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. I consider, Paul says in verse 18, that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. All right, we see here that creation was subjected to the curse, if you will, because of man's sin. And creation itself is waiting for us to be revealed, the sons of God to be revealed. And as you've heard me touch on before, this is going to happen at the rapture. This is where creation begins to be released from its bondage. As I've touched on before, and I'll just hit it very quickly for those that don't remember or never heard this. There are three laws of redemption in the Old Testament that point to things in the New. There was the law of leveret marriage, where you redeemed the bride. You know the Ruth and Boaz story. If a man had died and he produced no children, his brother was to take his wife and produce a line through him. You redeemed the bride. Well, the Bible says that we have become the bride of Christ. And when Jesus died on the cross, he purchased the bride, if you will. He, 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 he paid the dowry, if you will. And, and we are the bride of Christ. And the bride has been redeemed. That's already been done through Jesus at the cross. There's also the law of redeeming the slave in the Old Testament. Every seven years, the slave could be set free, or in the year of Jubilee, the slave could be set free. And we see again, the Bible says in the book of Romans, chapter 6, that our bodies are slaves to sin. By the way, has your body been redeemed yet? No, the bride's been redeemed at Calvary. The body has not been redeemed yet. When is the body going to be redeemed? At the rapture. Remember, when the rap, when Jesus comes with those who have already gone to be with him, their bodies are going to come up out of the ground. Those of us who are alive at the time will be changed, and we'll get our new bodies at that time. So that redemption has not occurred yet. That happens at the rapture. But there's a third law of redemption, and you'll find that if you want to double-check me in Leviticus 25, where it says if an individual lost their property or the land, a near relative had to buy the land back and had to meet the terms. By the way, you can look at it in Jeremiah 32 and other places. The scripture talks about the fact that the terms for the redeeming of the land were to be written on a scroll, written on two scrolls. One put in the inner part of the temple, one put on a bulletin board, if you will, in the temple area. And if an individual who was able to meet the terms because they were a near relative, when they came by and read those terms, they'd say, I'm able to meet the terms of buying the land back for my relative, they would go into the temple, tell the priests, and they had the authority to open the seals because they had the sealed copy and the unsealed copy. 
Well, what happens after the rapture? The last seven-year period begins for the, for the nation of Israel and the world. And you remember John has been taken up into heaven to see what must take place after this. And then he wept because there was this seven-sealed scroll and there was no one to open the seals. And the angel comes and says, relax, there's somebody able to open it. And it's Jesus. And he begins to open the seals. Remember our study of Revelation. And every time he opened a seal, something happened on earth. Why? He's redeeming the land. He's getting his land back. And by the end of the tribulation, not only will the bride have been redeemed and our bodies, the slaves have been redeemed, the land will have been redeemed and it'll return to its glorious state for the millennial kingdom and all that. And the lion will lay with the lamb and the kid will play in the cobra hole and all that. It's going to be a wonderful, wonderful time. So creation is waiting for what? What's next? The second part of redemption when the sons of God are revealed and we get our new bodies because they know what? After we get our new bodies, they're next. Creation is waiting anxiously. And so along with this, the Bible says that in that time to come in the millennial kingdom, we're going to be co-heirs with Jesus. We're going to share in his glory. We're going to reign with him. But there's an interesting picture here back in, and we'll come back to more of what authority we have now, between now and then. We'll come back to that later tonight. Go back to Hebrews 2, though. There's an interesting picture here in Hebrews 2. You see, Jesus, the Bible says here in verses, uh, verse 9, said, so we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death and goes on to talk how he might taste death for everyone. We'll come back to that tonight a little bit later. But just deal with this picture. Jesus has been crowned with glory and honor. And he's been declared to be the king. Remember, he's, he's accomplished it. He's sat down. Yet he's not in full power. Do you see it? You do hopefully understand that he, even though he's got all authority in heaven and earth, he's not been, he's been given all authority, but he's not in full power right now. Jesus is not in charge. How come? It's not time. Give me some more reasons. Why is he not in charge? Satan is ruling in the earth, but remember, God can stop his reign anytime he wants. Why is Jesus not ruling and reigning right now? I'm sorry? There is still more to come. God is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness, but he's patient, not wanting anyone to perish, but all to come to repentance. Folks, the only answer to that question really is, besides the fact that it's not time, is the fact that the reason Jesus hasn't set up his kingdom yet is there's more he wants to know him. He's patient. He's loving. Yeah, I understand. Those of us, as we read there in Hebrews, we groan inwardly waiting for our adoption. We know it's close. We can't wait to get there. The rapture is something we look forward to. But let's be honest. We're already in. (laughs) What if you got family that's not in? Aren't you thankful that he's given them another day? Aren't you thankful that he hasn't set up his kingdom yet for them? Is that... Tastes good in your mouth, but it turns your stomach sour thing we read about in the book of Revelation. We know the truth and it tastes so good, but oh, it's not good for those that don't know him. But also, what we see is also a picture of what happened to David. Remember when David was a young boy and he's out in the field watching the sheep? And the guy comes and gets him and says, hey, there's this prophet, Samuel, he wants to come see you. So he shows up and what does Samuel do? Pours oil on his head and anoints him as the next king of Israel. He's been anointed. Was he king? No, he had to wait until it was time. He had to wait until it was time. 
In the same way, Jesus has been crowned. He is the king. But he's got to wait until his time. At the same time, we too have been given a sonship. We too have been given authority. We too are going to be co-heirs and reign with Jesus, but not just yet. There is some authority. We'll get to that in a little bit. But I want you to read 1 John with me. 1 John chapter 3. Verses 1 and 2. I don't want you to wait until you turn there because I really want you to see this. It's a wonderful passage. 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. So we're back by the book of Revelation. Chapter 3 starts like this. It says, How great is the love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called the children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it doesn't know Him. Dear friends, listen. Now we are children of God. And what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him for we shall see him as he is. Do you see it? You are the children of God right now through faith in Jesus Christ, through him sealing you with his spirit. You are his children right now. But the full manifestation of how that's all going to play out has not been yet made known. You've been anointed. But you're stepping into ruling and reigning like David hasn't happened yet, has it? You've got some authority now because of that, and we're going to get to that. But for right now, understand you don't have the full authority yet because all authority has been given to Jesus and he's not even exercising it right now. And if Jesus is not exercising his full authority, who, who are you to think you are? We don't have the full, full authority just yet. Well, we have authority, though. And I want to get into that in, 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 in right now. I, w- I want to talk about the fact that there is, though, a level of authority that we do have here on earth. And it's because of our relationship with Jesus Christ. But I want you to listen closely to what we're talking about here. because This will be very important. This authority comes solely through our relationship with Jesus, who's God. The authority that you have right now comes solely through your relationship with Jesus, who's God. This is what the Bible talks about when it talks about anything in his name. We need to clarify and make sure we understand what he talks about when he says in his name. Uh, So go with me to John chapter 16. Now, as we go through this, if you have any questions, please raise your hand and and we'll deal with it. But I want to start to begin to show you and hopefully be used to God to clarify some misconceptions in Christendom when it comes to our authority in Christ here on the earth. John chapter 16, verses 23 and 24. Look at what Jesus says. He says, In that day you will no longer ask me anything. I tell you the truth, my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive and your joy will be complete. Now, this in that day is not referring to the kingdom. This in that day is referring to when the Spirit of God came to indwell us. Remember, Jesus is now talking about the fact that he's in this in chapters 14 and 15 and 16 been talking about how it's good for you that he goes away and the Holy Spirit's going to come when he goes away and you'll receive power as we know in Acts 1-8 and be his witnesses and, and all. And he talks about the difference in the relationship between what it was and what it now will be after the cross. And so we're living in that day. 
He said, before you haven't asked for anything in my name, but now you can and you will. And so if you're wanting a definition of what does in his name mean, I want you to write it down this way. In his name means with his permission and his authority. I'm going to say that again. With his permission and his authority. It's very important that you get that. Because there are those who try to exercise the authority they have in Jesus, and it's beyond the realm of the authority that Jesus has given. We're going to get to that in a second. For right now, in his name means with his permission and with his authority. The Bible says, and I'll get right to you, Gene. The Bible says we can go into the throne room of God right now. How come? How can you go into the throne room of God? Through Christ. With his permission and his authority. It's like that picture we see in the Matthew 22, the marriage banquet, and the wedding banquet. And the individual tried to get into the wedding banquet with his own robe. He didn't take the robe from the master. And this guy was in there with his own robe, didn't have the wedding garments on. And the master said, what are you doing in here without the wedding garments? And what happened to him? He was cast out. He tried to get in on his own authority, in his own name. Yes, ma'am, you had a question. So, would we consider I'm glad you're asking this question. Her question is, uh, is it too legalistic to say in Jesus' name when we pray, or should we always... Let me just say this. God is not measuring whether you said the magic words, first of all. Second of all, it doesn't hurt to remind you when you pray each time because of Jesus. You know, if your reason you're saying in his name or in Jesus name, amen, is a reminder of it's because of Jesus that I'm able to come to you. That's great. If you're afraid that you didn't say the magic words, you still don't understand. You already have been given. You're in his name, whether you say in his name or not. But it's very helpful for us to remember that when I pray, it's because of Jesus, I'm able to talk to you. And you know, sometimes when I pray, instead of saying in Jesus name, amen, I say, and it's because of Jesus that I'm able to talk to you right now. It's the same thing as saying in his name. But there are those who used to fear that you didn't say the magic words. You don't have to worry about that. All right? So, in his name means with his permission and his authority. Let me give you an example. I've shared this with some of you in the past. Let's just say that uh, um, uh, I've got a great relationship with the hardware store down the, down the road. And uh, they know me well, and uh, I've always paid my bills, and, and we've got a great relationship. And uh, I have a good reputation in that hardware store. Well, let's say I'm working on something in my kitchen, and I'm under the sink, and a pipe bursts. And I can't get to my wallet and I can't let go of the pipe. I would tell AJ, run down to the hardware store and get this for me. And AJ would say, Dad, I don't have any money. And I would say, just go tell him I sent you. He would be going in my name. Do you understand? And he would say, I'm here because my dad said I could. <laughs> and they, because of their relationship with me, would give him what he had asked. He didn't ask in his name. He asked in my name. Jesus said, you haven't asked for anything yet in my name. But in that day, you can. Because why? Once we have been united with God through Jesus Christ, all of his authority becomes our authority. So please do not hear me say that you have a diminished authority. You have tremendous authority. But is Jesus exercising all of his authority right now? That was a question, by the way. No. He's been crowned. All authority on heaven and earth.
strength had been given to him, but he is not exercising it all. That's We can hopefully see that as we watch what's going on in our world. And he has his reasons for why he's not exercising his full authority. Therefore, as we as Christians now start to deal with the authority that we have in Christ, don't take that to a realm beyond what Jesus would exercise. Do you understand? You have the authority of Jesus Christ. Yes. But if Jesus is not exercising all his authority, therefore, you probably will not be able to exercise all the authority you would think Jesus would. Does that make sense? Is that clear for you? Another way to describe it is in 1 John chapter 5. If you had trouble finding 1 John 3, hopefully you remember roughly where it was. Go over to 1 John 5. Because the Bible also describes it this way. If you ask anything, what? According to His will. Yes, Jesus has all authority and He could do anything He wants. But he has chosen for this time period that we're living in, between now and when he sets up his kingdom, he has chosen not to exercise all his authority for his purposes. So now when we ask, we need to ask in his name. If we are in right relationship, we can. If we're saved, that's all the right relationship you need. You can ask in his name. Yet, we also have to ask according to his will. First John chapter 5, look at verses 13 through 15. John says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we ask of Him. In other words, there is nothing in the will of God that He'll ever say no to you about. Because of who you are in Christ, all the authority that He has, you have. But God is not totally exercising all of his authority yet for his reasons. And sometimes he may tell you no. Because it doesn't line up with what he's trying to do and the reasons why he's not exercising his full authority. Let me ask, all right, keeping this in mind will keep us from taking our authority to unbiblical realms. For example, our authority over evil spirits comes from our standing firm in our relationship to God through Christ, Right? When we stand firm in who we are in Christ, and we're going to look at those passages, and resist Satan and his his attacks, he flees. But it's because of God, not because of us. But is Jesus totally running all demons out right now? Could he? Does he have all authority? Yes. But Jesus, in his purposes, and why he hasn't, has not banished all evil. He has not removed all dominion in the spiritual realm. Yet there are Christians who think that they can just walk into a room and chase Satan out of there. What if if God hasn't done that yet? Don't automatically think you can too. The Bible says, and I'm going to show you what the Bible says, that you have authority over the evil spirits, but it's in your resisting them. Not in your chasing them out. Now, are there going to be times that God would use you to actually remove a demon or cast a demon out of somebody? Yes. But that doesn't mean that everyone you speak to has to go. See, we've heard this teaching for so long that I said that in the name of Jesus, this demon has to go. The Bible doesn't say that. Someone told me one time, well, God cannot be in the presence of evil. Yeah, actually he can. Satan stands in his presence every day accusing the brethren. God can have no relationship with evil. He's holy and cannot have relationship. That's why you needed Christ to enter into a relationship with him. 
But God's in the presence of evil right now. Satan is in his presence accusing the brethren. One day he's going to be cast out of his presence forever and ever down to the earth and no woe to the people on the earth at that time. But the Bible actually says that our authority over evil spirits will be at times that God will give us his authority to remove them. But most of the time it's in resisting them. Go to James chapter 4. Look at verse 7. See, we love to quote the scripture that says, Resist the devil and he'll flee, but you forgot the first part. Submit yourself, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee. Do you see it? Your authority comes from you standing in the presence of God. The demons aren't afraid of you. They're afraid of the God in you. They're not afraid of mankind. There's a story in the book of Acts where these seven sons of Sceva decided that they were going to try the magic word. So they went to cast this demon out of this man and said, We command you to come out in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches. The demon in that man said, I know who Jesus is and I've heard of Paul. I don't know who you are. And the Bible says the demon in that man overpowered those seven men, beat them up, sent them out of the house naked. Wait a minute, they cast them out in the name of... No, we're not talking a magic word here. And they didn't even have his name. They said his name, but they didn't have the relationship. Therefore, they couldn't ask or command in his name. And, as you're going to see in a little bit, sometimes God doesn't heal. Does God heal? Yes. But does he always heal? See, there are some who take a little bit of truth and they try to build a theological base for, well, if we have enough faith. Folks, if that were biblically true, nobody would die. You ever thought about that? If it were really true that you could have enough faith and enough authority in Jesus to command the sickness to go away, nobody would die. But actually, and we'll get to that in a second, The Bible says that God doesn't heal everybody. Go to Ephesians chapter 6. I want you to see this again. Look closely at these passages. Yes, you have authority in Jesus Christ. But most of the time, your authority is in standing firm because of Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 18. Paul says, finally, be strong what in the Lord and in what his mighty power circle the word his highlight the word his underline the word his in his mighty power put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes for our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against the rulers against the authorities against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to what? Stand your ground. 
And after you have done everything to stand, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. You're standing firm in his power, with his armor, because of your relationship with him. Now, I'll be honest with you. My wife and I, probably looking, what, 18, 19 years ago, we got caught up in all this casting out demon, fighting in the spiritual realm stuff. The good news is God takes care of us, even though we were acting stupid. But me and, some, and my wife and I and some Christian friends really started, I mean, someone had come and taught us that we had authority over demons and all this stuff. And there was this one pastor we knew that was in the exorcism. And please hear me. I believe that God still removed, there are still demon possession. I believe that a lot of stuff going on in our world today is because of that. I think a lot of things that doctors are dealing with is really more spiritual than physical. But at the same time, we got sucked into this ministry of storming the gates of hell. And we actually would have a pastor friend of ours who had this young lady who had demons in her and he was going to cast them out. But he needed our prayer support and he needed us to pray and to fast. Because, you know, this kind only comes out by prayer and fasting. And that's actually a misinterpretation of the scripture, which I'll get to maybe. But my wife and I and our friends, we sat up all night, 24 hours, praying and fasting. We'd call into that house where the pastor was. What's going on? Well, here's what's happening now, but the demon hasn't come out yet. Pray harder. And oh, we were storming against Satan and his, you know, because we had authority in Jesus Christ. And by the way, after being up 24 hours and doing this, we made it back to our house in the dark. And we were so sure Satan was out to get us that we, I had Becky stand out on the porch as I went into our apartment to make sure that there were no demons in the room. And God was patient until a godly older Christian said, Jim, have you ever really looked at the Bible and realized how little Paul dealt with the evil spirits? He acknowledged they were there, but Paul focused on Jesus and standing firm in Jesus. Paul didn't go out chasing out demons. Actually, you'll see him in that place where these demons were in these girls and they walked behind him for four days. Saying, these are the men of the Most High God showing you the way to be saved. Finally, after four days, Paul said, all right, come out. And that, of course, got him in a lot of trouble. But he didn't make it his ministry to go cast out demons. He said, you focus on Jesus Christ, and the demons will be taken care of. I want to tell you the same thing. Do you have authority? Yes. But most of your authority comes from standing firm in who you are in Jesus Christ. Just as you've heard me say, when Jesus walked on the earth, he was physical Jesus. He was also God. The spiritual realm could see the physical Jesus, but they also saw that he was God because they could see in the spiritual realm. And they saw Jesus and they said, whoa, we know who you are, Jesus, son of the most high God. Have you come to send us to the abyss before the appointed time? They were freaked out by the fact that Jesus was there. Do you realize that same Jesus lives in you now? Do you realize those same demons cannot touch you? 
They can't even tempt you without permission from your father. That's how you can stand firm. That's how you don't have to worry about Satan's out to get me or, oh no, the demons. Now listen to me. If you're a child of God in Jesus Christ, they are not going to do anything to you unless your father said yes and he controlled how much. And he's doing it for your growth. And he's doing it for your best. Take a deep breath and stop thinking that you're going to go storm the gates of hell. Because if Jesus wants to storm the gates of hell, he will. One day he's going to. One day he's going to end up, as we saw, get rid of all dominion and authority. But he hasn't. He's been crowned with glory and honor, but he has not taken full authority yet. He has reasons why, which means that even though you have the same authority because of your relationship with him, he may choose not to exercise that authority through you over evil. Which means, well, go to 1 Peter 5 and let 1 Peter 5 explain it to us. First Peter 5, verses 6 through 11. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Did you catch that? What does lift you up in due time mean to you? He may exalt you. And when? When he chooses. At just the right time. But it's up to him. It's not up to you. Cast all your anxiety or your cares on him because he cares for you. Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him. Standing firm in the faith. Because you know your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you have suffered a little while will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. Wait a minute. Did, did I just read Peter say that sometimes Satan might win a battle? Yeah. Not the war. But did I not just read that after you suffered, God will restore you and make you stand firm? Am I correct in reading that the scripture says that sometimes... You might lose a battle with the spiritual realm of evil. We got people out there saying, no, you've got the authority. No, sometimes God, for his purposes, says, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you sweet, and I pray for you. And when you come back, here's what we're going to do. Do you think that sometimes we uh, put on all the armor of God and start battling Satan, and instead of listening to God, to what he wants to teach us, and prolong the... Uh, yeah, I, 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 would, I would agree with you. What Duke's saying is sometimes we put on the armor of God, go to fight Satan, and instead of listening to God, he lets us go fight for a while. And we get beat up a little bit, don't we? And he says, how was that? Was that fun? <laughs> By the way, why don't you wait until I say charge? You know? You, I, I want you to hear me. You have authority in Jesus Christ. But you can't storm the gates until Jesus says charge. And sometimes, well, does he heal? Yes. Does he always heal? No. 
Go, go with me real quick to uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 19 and 20. We have a, such a strong tendency to want to run to the extremes when it comes to scriptural truth. Paul says something very interesting here that a lot of people might not have ever seen. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 19 and 20, Paul says, Greet Priscilla and Achilla and the household of Vanessaphorus. Erastus stayed in Corinth, and I left Trophimus sick in Miletus. Wait a minute! Why didn't Paul just heal him? I mean, Paul's the one that was preaching. Eutychus fell to his death. Paul went down, brought him back from the dead. Paul was used of God to heal people. He went and healed this uh, people on the island of Malta. They thought he was a god and all this stuff. And How come Paul didn't heal Trophimus? God didn't say charge. So I'm saying pray for healing. I'm saying pray for victory against the evil that's around you. Stand firm. But when it appears that Satan won anyway, rest in the fact that God has a reason. Rest in the fact that God has a reason. God, I prayed that my child would not turn away, and they did. God, I prayed that you would spare. And God, I, I believed more than I ever believed. And you, you let it happen anyway. And many people have, because of bad teaching about the authority we have in Christ, have walked away from Jesus because it's like, well, I, I tried it and it didn't work. No, you try to lie and it, of course, isn't going to work. The Bible says you have authority, but don't take it to realms that you don't have. Jesus has full authority. He's not exercising it all yet. Well, neither can you. Do you have authority? Yes. Is he more powerful than everything? Yes. Will he heal? Yes. But I didn't say he promised he would heal in your situation. But don't let that make you fall back and say, well, what's the point? I just don't know what he's going to say yes, and I don't know what he's going to say no. Good. He's God. Keep asking. Keep believing. And if he says yes, praise him. If he says no, praise him. And then all of a sudden, that childhood story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego comes back where they stood before that fiery furnace and the king says, is your God able to rescue you from this? This is what they said. He is able. Whether he chooses to or not, we don't got a clue. We ain't got a word from the Lord. But we'll just know this. We're not bowing down. In that instance, they were put into it and he spared them. They didn't know what the answer was until it happened. Pray, believe, and what he says is the right answer. And worship him anyway. When he heals, thank him. When he doesn't, thank him. Why? Everything he does is best. Well, I would beg to differ, Jim. I don't see anything good that could. Hey, do you? If you were a follower of Jesus at that time, could you see anything good coming out of him being killed? They didn't. They couldn't see it at all. But we spend. Sundays and Wednesdays and throughout the week praising God for that wonderful thing that made no sense at the time. In the time we have left, what I want to do is uh, go back to verse 9. And we're going to have to do this fast. Go back to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9. And we're only going to touch on this because it will be a major part of what we do next week. 
But look at what he says in verse 9. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. By the way, for those of you that your translations have that taste, that's an okay word, but it doesn't mean he only sampled it. Okay, There are some that think that Jesus didn't fully die because he only tasted death. No, the better translation of that word is he experienced death. He died. All right, he fully died. All right. But what I want to deal with is is the fact that he experienced death for everyone and he experienced death for us. It's important that you get this because it'll help you in your understanding of the gospel and your relationship with him. We're not going to turn there, but in John chapter 11, Jesus says to Martha, you know, whoever lives and believes in me will never die. You know, he said, we'll live even though he dies and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Okay. So. What does Jesus mean then when he says, whoever lives and believes in me will never die? What does that mean? What's he saying? Well, go to Galatians chapter 2, and we'll begin to kind of lay the foundation for this and get us ready for next week. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. Look what Paul says. He said, I have been crucified with Christ. And I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, you've been with me hopefully so far tonight when I've said that the same authority that Jesus has, you have, right? You would agree that the same authority that Jesus has, you have. He's not fully exercising it yet, and therefore we can't all the time either. But the same authority you have because of your relationship. In the same way now, everything that has happened to Jesus is now yours. Which means that when he died, what happened to you? Since you've been put in Christ, you have now died. The Bible actually says in the book of Romans, since he's died, sin has no power over him anymore. And guess what? The same for you. Now, we don't always experience that because we haven't learned how to live out of the spiritual realm instead of the flesh. And that's a daily struggle. But the Bible says clearly, Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. Christ now lives. I, the old me's dead. I've been put crucified with Christ. Go to Colossians chapter 3. You're in Galatians. Go over to Colossians. Look at verses 1 through 4. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Wait a minute. Wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. What do you mean I've been raised with Christ? Remember? Everything that has happened to him, if you are in Christ, is now yours. His death is your death. His being raised is yours. Remember Ephesians chapter 2 says that in verse 6 that we've been raised with Christ and seated in the heavenly realms. Since we have already been raised with Christ... Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For what? You died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Is it not spiritually true that Jesus is God, and he has all authority, and one day the world's going to know it? The same's true you. The same's true you. Right now, they may not see it, but one day they will. And when he comes back, we get to be with him. And the glory he has, we'll receive. And the world will see that just as Jesus is really for real, they'll see you are at that time as well.
the last thing I want to share with you is in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Verses 14 through 21. It said, For Christ's love compels us. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 14. For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view, though we once regarded Christ in this way. We do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone. The new has come. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, we're going to get into this a little bit more detail next week, but listen to what I'm about to say. And I want you to hear me, because it's going to sound a little bit different from what you may have heard growing up in church. I believe the Bible teaches that Jesus' death on the cross has accomplished forgiveness for everyone already. Listen to what it says. That God was in Christ reconciling everything to himself. In other words, in God's mind, the death of Christ was so sufficient, everything's reconciled. It's not if you ask Jesus, he'll forgive you. The message of the gospel is he's already forgiven you. You have to receive it. Do you see the difference? We've been preaching. If you ask him, he will. Like there's a time period you're already forgiven. That's the good news of the gospel to those who are lost. Yes, if you reject this, you will spend eternity separated from God who offers you this free gift. But the Bible's pretty clear, folks, that God has already reconciled man to himself. In God's mind, through Christ, what he did, it's taken care of, it's paid for. Our message should be, you be reconciled to God. Receive what he's already done. God's not mad at you, sinner. God loves you, sinner. God died for you while you were a sinner. If we would sit there and agree as Christians that Romans 5 says he died for us while we were still sinners, and he loved us when we were sinners, doesn't he love those sinners too who say no? Man, what good news we have. It's the love of Christ that compels us. But the church, unfortunately, has been preaching a false gospel, a wrong gospel. They've been saying, if you then, the Bible says he already did. He already does. Receive it. And oh, by the way, you've got to receive it first. Not just, I'm not saying you're not saved. I'm saying you ain't a little sunk in. If you're in Christ, there's no condemnation for you. God, your Father, will get you to be what He wants you to be. He's conformed, planned to conform you to the image of His Son. But guess what? He ain't measuring whether or not you read your Bible today. He's not judging whether or not you said your prayers. 
You are reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. You're in Him. You're already dead to sin. You're already raised with Him. It's already done. Why don't you just accept it and enjoy it? Oh, and by the way, once you start to accept it and enjoy it, they won't be able to shut you up about this good news because the love of God will compel you. Folks, I found that the more I've understood the real gospel, the truth of the gospel, man, I can't, I'm driving down the road thinking, I wonder if this guy in the car next to me knows the good news. God's already reconciled everybody through Jesus. They just have to receive it. It's already done. Your, your, your neighbors and your friends and your family are thinking they have to do certain things in order to be right with God. You can tell them the good news. It's already been done. It's already been paid. And God is just offering it. Receive it. Now, if they choose to reject it, the Bible's real clear that God will punish man for his sins. I told you I was going to leave you one more verse, but I have to show you one more. I, I just, if I stopped there, you'd never believe me ever again. Go to Exodus chapter 34. You haven't been to that book yet. <laughs> Exodus 34. The reason we're going to Exodus 34 is because Chris said we haven't been to Exodus yet in this, the night study. So I want you to see this. I want you to see this. Moses in chapter 34 says to God, show me your glory. God says to Moses, I'm going to let my goodness pass by you. Why did God say to Moses, I'm only going to let my goodness pass by you? Could Moses have handled all of God? No, because Jesus hadn't paid the price yet. Moses would have died if he had seen all of God. But God says, I'm going to let my goodness pass by you. I'm going to put you in a cleft of the rock. I'm going to let my goodness pass by. All right, but now go in chapter 34 and look at verse 5 when this happens. It said, the Lord came down in the cloud and he stood there with him. And he proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet... He doesn't leave the guilty unpunished. Did you see that? He is abounding in love. He's compassionate. He's slow to anger. He loves you. Now, don't make that make you run down the road to think everybody goes to heaven. He doesn't leave the guilty unpunished. But the good news is, in God's eyes, if you'll receive this truth, you're not guilty anymore through what Jesus did. But you have to receive it. If you reject it, you ha- you're still guilty then on your own. And you'll be punished. The message of the gospel, the true gospel, doesn't remove hell, folks. But God himself, as he let his, past, his goodness passed by Moses, said, and this is who I am. And those of us who are now in Christ don't have to worry about the, the yeah, but, about the guiltiness, because we're no longer guilty. And then to visiting the iniquity of the fathers, to be honest, I can answer it as soon as we turn the tape off because it would take a long time, but I can answer it. I can answer that question. But for the sake of those who are listening online, it's time for us to draw it to a close, and we're going to stop there. But those of you that are listening online and you want to know the answer to that question too, should have been here. Um, I'm sorry. Let me, let me, let me, I didn't say Jim was abounding in compassion. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the good news. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for your patience and your long-suffering toward us. Lord, many of us have known you for many years, but we've believed um, mistruths about who you are. And Father, sometimes some of us have been sucked into some of these teachings that don't line up with your truth. Lord, tonight you've shown us 
that everything has been put under your feet, yet at right now we don't see everything subject to you. And therefore, that truth applies to us as well. Yes, we're in you, and we have your authority. But if not everything is subject to you yet, that means not everything's subject to us yet. And forgive us for taking a partial truth of your word and trying to make it seem like we could heal or everything's going to happen that we say. Father, thank you that we have your authority. Thank you, Jesus, that we can do things in your name. Thank you that you've made us your children. Thank you for your grace. Thank you that you reconciled us to you through your death on the cross. Father, may we receive this truth so much so that the good news will be flowing out of us, that we would tell our neighbors and our friends that God's not mad. He didn't come to judge. He came to save. He came to die for their sins. The wrath of God will come if they totally reject this free gift. Father, may they understand your love for them so that they may return to you in faith. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.